Kevin's call to worship was so appropriate because uh, this morning I want to tag our message, Opposition and the Comfort of God's Protection. Will you say that with me? Opposition and the comfort of God's protection. One more time. Opposition and the comfort of God's protection. Amen. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. How do you deal with critics who will not be pleased? Maybe you thought of one in that question. But I just wonder, how do, how do you deal with critics who will not be pleased? I mean, they're just set against you. They don't want your success. They never will. And at some point, it becomes unproductive to try to win them over and I know that sounds harsh coming from a pastor in a church, but let's just get real. At some point, it becomes unproductive to try to win them over. In fact, the more you become concerned about winning them over, the more you become concerned about what they think, and then the more you try to measure up to the number of their likes... And then the more you obsess over their opinions and the more trapped you become in their snare. The fear of mankind is a snare. Yeah, I think the Proverbs writer is on to something. The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts the Lord is protected. And today I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that teaches us the comfort and liberation of trusting God's protection. If you have your Bibles, let's speed to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah chapter 4. We are in a journey through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, this uh, individual that God used to regather God's people. And God called Nehemiah from the palace as cupbearer to the emperor of Persia 450 years before Jesus lived. He called Nehemiah from the palace to this dusty outpost, which is what basically Jerusalem and Judah had become post-exile. After the Babylonians had come and, and ravaged the land, then God's people returned and, and still they had been languishing. God called Nehemiah to help rebuild and revitalize the city. And it's here that Nehemiah faces opposition. And the fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is, is protected. Proverbs 29, 25 comes alive in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4 is about the prison of fearing man versus the protection of trusting God. And so God used Nehemiah to break the addiction of some approval junkies. And in doing so, he shepherds us 
into the protection of God, the comfort of God. Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. And I want you to see and feel the comfort of God in these verses. Nehemiah lives up to his name to bring the comfort of God to the people of God. We're going to look at the entire chapter, but I want to read verses 6 through 14. So we built the wall. That's the wall of Jerusalem. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is God's word. Now you can sense the opposition in these verses. And in the face of this opposition, here's the big idea. It's simply this. Trusting God protects us from the prison of man's fear. Trusting God protects us from the prison of man's fear. See, Proverbs 29, 25 is really the big idea of Nehemiah chapter 4. Trusting God, that is, relying on God, depending on God, leaning on God. To, to trust, by trust I mean to put oneself under God's jurisdiction for my protection. That's, that's what we mean. Trusting God protects us from the prison of man's fear. Now, now, how does Nehemiah do that? Let's just get practical here. How does Nehemiah urge Israel to trust God? Well, in three ways. Prayer, weaponry, and vigilance. That is, Nehemiah prays, he urges prayer, he equips God's people, and then he urges them to stand ready. Prayer, weaponry, vigilance. If you want to overcome the fear of man and enjoy the custody and comfort of God's protection, prayer, weaponry, and vigilance. Let's talk about each of these this morning. 
Trusting God's protection first takes prayer. Prayer. So the project is at the halfway point. You see that in verse 6? The wall was joined together to half its height. So, you know, the enthusiasm of the start has just kind of dissipated. And now reality has set in. And it's at the halfway point where opposition comes. Is that true in your life? Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, the people of God have gathered together. Fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and goldsmiths and merchants and perfumers and priests and lay people, folks from every walk of life. And they've worked together side by side. Chapter 3 said next to him, next to them. And, and uh, gates have been rebuilt, doors, bolts, bars have been set. Gates, doors, bolts, bars. Gates, doors, bolts, bars. There's just kind of an orchestrated rhythm and symphony to this magnificent unity as God's people from every walk of life work together. I mean, chapter 3 is just wonderful. And on the heels of this spectacle of heaven on earth, Sanballat shows up. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Who is Sanballat? Who is he anyway? Well, uh, we learn not only from the Bible, but outside the Bible, that Sanballat was... uh, governor of an area called Samaria, which was just north of Jerusalem. So Sanballat was a warlord of one of the 20 provinces. Actually, he was a warlord in a small section of one of the provinces of 20 provinces of the sweeping Persian Empire. So Nehemiah would have traveled through his territory on his arrival. And from the get-go, Sanballat opposes the work. I mean, we read about him in chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, Sanballat jeered at us and despised us. That's his song, and he sticks to it. All throughout the book of Nehemiah. And in in Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 4, Sanballat publicly opposes God's people. And he spews five rapid-fire questions intended to demoralize. Verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? That's Sanballat. He is accompanied by an ally named uh, Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, so Ammon was in a territory east of Jerusalem. I think I have a map that I want to show you. I'm hoping that it'll appear right about now. Is it there? Do we have one? Not today? Not today. Okay, that's fine. Use your imagination, okay? To the north of Jerusalem. Just go north of Jerusalem, and that's Samaria. And then just just go east of Jerusalem. On the other side of the Dead Sea, that's Ammon. 
there you are. You picture that? Say yes. All right. (laughs) Jerusalem's revitalization was a threat to their pecking order. And so Tobiah cries out, yeah, even if a fox jumps on it, it's going to break down. You know, just real, he's really sophomoric. He's just a child. And, and, and keep in mind, the wall is nine feet thick. See? So, uh, church, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that if you live for God, you will never have opposition. But you know that's not true. You know that's not true. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He wasn't joking. That's not a metaphor. Okay, it's a promise. He said, I've told you things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. I've conquered the world. And, and in chapter 4, here's what I want you to see. Why is opposition occurring? Opposition is occurring because God's work is advancing. So when God's work advances, expect opposition. Just ex- In fact, if you just look back and examine Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, what we see is a series of cycles of advance and opposition advance and opposition and this chapter teaches us that whenever you try to accomplish anything significant for God you will face opposition Satan does not bother with half-hearted people who are content with a ho-hum spiritual existence he's not going to mess with 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 such lukewarm faith But when you come on fire for Christ, look out. Because the name Satan means accuser or adversary. And so when you choose God, you have automatically chosen to oppose him. And he will oppose the work of God, especially people who passionately pursue God's glory. This is true on a personal level. As, as long as you live with one foot in the world, as long as you live with, with one foot in the values of the world, you, you, Satan's not going to trouble you. You can even show up at church and, and pray and read your Bible. He won't mind. But the moment you wake up from spiritual lethargy and shake off the worldly mindset, and commit yourself to radical obedience for Christ, you will encounter opposition. And this is not only true on a personal level, it's true on a church level as well. Satan doesn't care if we gather and sing and hear soothing sermons about how the Scripture can be used for your personal success. Such churches are of no threat to him. But when the gospel is proclaimed as absolute truth, when the pulpit proclaims that Jesus is not a way, but the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, then look out. Over and over, the scriptures describe the faithful not as those who never saw trouble, but those who cried out to the Lord in their trouble and opposition. That's right. 
Some of us are going to leave this worship and you're going to return to your sand ballad. You've got to meet your sand ballad in about two hours. And your sand ballad is all too eager to call you feeble. All too eager to bring up your past. All too eager to bring up your hang-ups and your sins. Sandballot's personal mission is to discourage you. Now, how are you going to respond? Hmm. How does Nehemiah respond? Prayer. Trusting God's protection takes prayer. I like the, the writer who said Nehemiah was a, a leader from the knees up. He got on his knees and he just prayed. He prayed and he prayed. And, and let's, let's listen to his prayer. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their head and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. <laughs> That's raw. That's raw. Lord, I want you to do to them what they want done to us. Now, again, that that may seem like, well, wait a minute. I thought this was a church, and I thought you were a pastor. This is, and I am. All right. Preach it anyway. Amen. That's right. That preach it anyway. Yes. Of, yes. Yes. <laughs> Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, in fact, please do that. All right? Do that. And, and keep in mind, and, and this, is, this is not a way to excuse Nehemiah. This is just context. This is context. Jesus spoke those words on a neighbor-to-neighbor dimension. Okay? Nehemiah, this is not just a personal feud. Nehemiah represents the crown. Nehemiah represents a broader corporate concern. He, he represents a, current, a concern at a state level. He's not praying for mafia vengeance. His prayer is a cry for justice because Sanballat is corrupt. And Nehemiah is confronting corruption. God, Sanballat, wants to obstruct justice. God, I'm asking that you might deliver justice. God, Sanballat, wants to marginalize your people. I ask that you gather your people. God, Sanballat, wants to belittle us. God, I ask that you magnify your name through us. See, this is why, this is why Nehemiah prays what he prays. And so when you're facing opposition from your Sanballat, God wants us to come to him in prayer. So rather than God removing opposition, God uses opposition to drive us to prayerful dependence on him. The Paul says in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving present your request to God. But in everything by prayer, everything. Have you tried this? Have you? When you are anxious, do you answer your anxiety by scripture-led prayer? 
So it's one of my challenges, and it's a challenge. I'll just say it. It's been the task of reducing the time lag between the onset of anxiety and the practice of prayer. So anxiety is a signal that it's time for me to pray. So, that, so that's what your anxiety is telling you. It's time to go to the Lord with this. Anxiety simply means that I'm weak and I need strength. And my strength comes from the Lord. And so when I'm anxious, I go to God in prayer. I go to God in prayer. And if you could just take a personal story from your pastor, I remember when I was recovering from my cancer surgery. And uh, I got really sick afterwards. I just got, I got really sick for about a week. And I was miserable. Some of you came to visit me, I don't even remember. And I, I wouldn't want that again ever. And I don't know how to describe this. But that, that time was a time of intimate prayer with my Heavenly Father. Because that's all I could do. I mean, that's literally all I could do. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. All I could do is just wait and pray. Wait and pray. And, and in prayer, you see, God helps us see reality. And you know what the reality was while I was away from you? The church continued to function. The reality was that I realized that I'm a, I'm a part of the body, not the head of the body. See. What I want to tell you is that whoever your Sanballat is, he's not bigger than God. And here's the reality. All your Sanballat can do is talk. That's all he's doing here. See, the reality is Nehemiah is authorized by the king of Persia to be where he is and do what he's doing. He has the paperwork. He has a, he has a guard. He has the resources. Sanballat talks. He just yak, 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 yak. God acts. See? And your Sanballat needs to be stood up side by side to the God of this universe. What you need, and, and here's the thing. This is, this is what I hope really is, is you can just feel this here as I'm explaining it. Nehemiah came to God in an era of salvation history where he is there in Jerusalem and then up the hill, up the mount is the temple where, where God's presence was uh, experienced, you see. But in our season of salvation history, the God we pray to is Emmanuel. God is with us. And God is in us by His Holy Spirit. 
So for this passage to come alive to you, you have to know that God is near. He's very near. So, so what are your assumptions about God when opposition comes your way? These verses teach us that when opposition comes, we can assume that God is near. We can assume that God hears. We can assume that God sees. We can assume that God is in control. And that's why when in at this point in the text, when opposition comes, Nehemiah prays to God and ignores Sanballat. He doesn't even talk to Sanballat in this portion. And he stays focused on the work. Trusting God's protection takes prayer. Verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Hmm. Well, I wish this were the end of chapter 4. Sanballat and his posse, they go away, right? Not quite. No, they double down. They go from angry in verse 1 to very angry in verse 7. And, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, so now Nehemiah is all surrounded. It's not just to the north and to the east. It's north, south, east, and west. They are surrounded. When they heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And so trusting God's protection gets intensified from, from requiring prayer to then requiring weaponry. Now let's talk about that. So their mockery turns to conspiracy. Look at verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So when the opposition intensified, Nehemiah's response intensified. So he prayed and he equipped the people. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So the pressure to quit is just, it's real. The workers began to feel anxiety about their safety. I mean, we're only halfway. We're overwhelmed. We're tired. We're going to get ambushed. They're hearing enemy whispers. And then on top of all of this, look at verse 12. The families begin to beg the workers to come home. Oh, man. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times, you must return to us. Well, I mean, spouses are pleading. How are we going to tell our little boy and little girl that mom or dad was killed? Come on, this has gone on long enough. Don't go back out there. Who's going to protect us if, you're, if your life is taken? And, oh. You know, ironically, the workers who left their families to build the wall were attempting to protect their families because a rebuilt city with secure walls could provide safety. So the, so the workers are just, trying to take the long view in, in, the, in the heat of this very intense moment. And it is a challenge. And it's what every family member feels when their loved one is deployed in military service or in emergency service, our fire department, our police department, our medical personnel here in COVID. 
And so how does Nehemiah shepherd God's people? What happens here? Nehemiah told them not only to pray, but he equipped them and he urged them to stay together. Now, church, we have no spears or bows to give you, okay? But I do have a sword. I'm serious about this. Yeah, we have a sword. And these verses, see, these verses are meaningful to us. What do, we, what do we make about these verses? Well, I mean, more than one commentator has urged pastors to teach this passage of Scripture in view of entire scope of salvation history, where in Christ what we need to understand is that behind the opposition, behind violence today in our world, behind persecution is spiritual warfare. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And in this conflict, church, the believer's only weapon, only offensive weapon, is the word of God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So do you see what's going on here? So, so Paul, I mean, it's as if Paul has just taken Nehemiah's life story and here in this portion of salvation history is pray and wield the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And so to, to, to arm ourselves with the Spirit's sword is to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or what about Psalm 91, verse 14? Because he holds fast to me in love. Do you believe that about the God of this universe? That he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him, God says. I will protect him. He knows my name. He knows my name. Or what about Isaiah 41.10? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Or what about Isaiah 41, 13? For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Or what about Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> I'm telling you. When the evil one opposes and accuses, unsheath your sword and preach the word. You don't have to wait until next Sunday to hear a sermon. Preach the word to yourself right here, right now. Memorize the, the word. Write them on index cards. When you're feeling insecure or anxious, you unsheath your sword. and Read it and repeat it. Over and over and over again. And then listen to me. Listen to me. This is so important. Nehemiah tells them to pray. He arms them. And then, then he says this. Stay together. Stay together. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
I tell you, our individualistic American culture ensnares us into thinking that we can live our faith by ourselves. And the wealthier we get, the lonelier we feel. And the scourge of COVID has disrupted the rhythm of meeting together. But when we separate ourselves, we become more vulnerable to temptation. When we separate ourselves, our hearts are more susceptible to unbelief. When we separate ourselves, we can neither give nor receive spiritual support. And, and I'm, I'm not saying you, I'm saying we. Because I'm in this too. I'm so grateful for the technology that has kept us together while we've had to be apart. But it's meeting in person and worshiping in person and praying in person and serving in person. This, this, is, this is the church at its best. And if you could take just another sentence of just a personal word from your pastor who loves you. When we're not together, I miss us. I miss us. This is one of the reasons why we have been um, gathering on Wednesday nights in classes. It's, it's been a long time since I've taught a Wednesday evening class. Why are we doing that, Pastor? Because I miss you, that's why. And love you. And, and want the word to be in our lives. Persevering in Christ is a community project. And just as God uses human voices to share the gospel so that others will know Christ, he also uses human voices to speak faith-sustaining words so that we will all endure together. And that's why Nehemiah equipped them and told them, you stick together, see. And I love what verse 15 says. When our enemies heard that it was known to us. So, so there was an imminent plot to disrupt the project that um, was addressed. And God's people were equipped. And I love how Nehemiah puts it. God had frustrated their plan. God did this. Prayer, equipment, and then from that day on, verse 16, vigilance. Prayer, weaponry, vigilance. Prayer, weaponry, vigilance. From that day on, Nehemiah brought protection by constant readiness. And, and that's what we see in each of these verses. I mean, the, half the weapons were held by, uh, uh, in one hand and, and, and half uh, held the trowel and the shovel. Half worked on the wall, half guarded them. The, so it was like a, a triple ring around the city. The wall surrounded the city, then the workers surrounded the wall, and then the, the the guards surrounded the workers. And then on top of this, Nehemiah set up an alarm system so that if there was an incident, verse 20 says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So, and then Nehemiah said, by the way, nobody's leaving 
nobody's going back home, okay? You're going to have to stay in the city until we get this project done. We'll change our clothes after this is all over. That's what he said. In other words, vigilance. Uh, uh, No coasting. No coasting. Just constant readiness. Constant readiness. Uh, To prevent spiritual stalling. Some of us feel like we've stalled in our spiritual walk with Christ. We don't feel as excited about the Lord as we used to. We don't feel as serious about our faith as we used to. And we wonder why. We wonder why. And, and I, to, if you are in that space, let me just pose this question. As your pastor who loves you, could it be that what we once did to, spoke a, to stoke a healthy spiritual walk, we've quit doing? At some point, we quit reading our Bible every day. At some point, we quit praying every day. At some point, we just sat back and started to enjoy the ride. Someone complimented you on your healthy walk with Christ, and you took that as an invitation to stop working. And now you're paying the price. Listen, you will never experience the grace of redemption if you cut and run. This side of heaven, there's a spiritual war that goes on. That's the deal. That's the deal. There's a spiritual war that's going on. And a mature walk with the Lord is mature because people keep walking. Right, left, right, left, right, left. That's it. They keep doing the things every day that keep their walk healthy. But whenever we think that we have reached a point where we can relax and chill and lie back and just kind of slide, that's when trouble comes. I guess what I'm saying is that the greatest danger to a mature spiritual life is a mature spiritual life. Because when things are good, we're tempted to give way to feelings of arrival and we forget the attitudes and disciplines that got us to health in the first place. And, and that's why in verses 16 to 23, Nehemiah just institutes some intentional habits to stay together. Keep depending on one another. Keep praying for one another. Our God will fight for us. Don't forsake meeting together. Pray, equip yourself, stay alert together. Pray together, equip yourself together, stay alert together. Do you know what it takes to deal with the sand ballot in your life? Toil and trust. Do you know what it takes to deal Honestly, with your sin, weakness, and failure, toil and trust. Do you know what it takes to make growth and change a daily agenda? Toil and trust, yeah. You know what it takes to build a strong foundation of trust? Toil and trust. It's a lifelong lifestyle of toil and trust beneath God's grace. And it's only when I remember God that I can keep him in the rightful place. And if he's not in his rightful place, then other things are going to take his place. And if God's love does not drive my life, self-love will. If God's kingdom doesn't motivate me, then Randy's kingdom will. If I'm not resting in God's control, then I'm going to want to take control. And if I'm not depending on God's grace, then I'm not going to give other people grace. And if I don't pray to the God in the presence of my Sanballat, then I'm going to become Sanballat. So Nehemiah brings the comfort of God and urges God's people to pray. He equips God's people for a threat that can only be answered by God's word. And then he says, keep your eyes open. 
Keep your eyes open. Because here's the deal. And you know that this is coming. Nehemiah's main project is not just building a wall. That's the easy part. (laughs) The The stones are the easy part. It really is. The difficult thing is building people. Building a people. And he wants to to build their confidence in the Lord. And what that takes is prayer, God's word, and community vigilance. Oh, I'll say it one more time and then I'm going to pray. The fear of mankind is a snare. But the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Amen.